let's turn to our scripture, Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 11. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came to Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But then they opposed Paul and became abusive. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid to keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Several years ago, I had a vision in my previous church. And in that vision, it was, um, it was an after-service fellowship, the, the kind that you had pre-COVID in pantry, but we had it in the canteen. There are lots of people then milling around, eating. But in that vision, what I saw was that the very poor, the poor penniless, were eating together with the very, very rich, the millionaires. The very ones with very little education were eating with the professors. But what was strange was that there didn't seem to be a divide. They were talking happily with each other. The ones who had no education were discussing things with those with education. Those who had no money were confidently talking to those who had lots of money. It seemed as though it was a very heterogeneous service where there was no class distinction, no education distinction. And that vision stuck on my mind. And so I spoke to several people about it and shared that vision. And the advice came back that all the church grove gurus would discourage that completely. It was highly discouraged because unless the church was homogenous, the church was alike in as many ways as possible, there is no way that the church can grow. That if the church was so diverse with very rich and very poor, very educated, no education, with cultural differences, the church would be in big trouble. There would be so much conflict. There would be differences, so, so many differences, that the church would never advance. Today we look at the church in Corinth. And the title of my sermon is The Corinthian Church, an Authentically Messed Up Church. We often have a very idealized picture of what the church should be, that there should be harmony. And sometimes we look at the number of people who were converted in the book of Acts, it's like this is a perfect thing, church growth. A friend of mine told me how he wished that our church would grow 5,000 a day, and I said, well, after that, then how? Well, we think that it would be growing from strength to strength. But we want to look at the Corinthian church 
and to see what it was like when the church was multicultural, an authentically messed up church. This church was multicultural. In verse 7 and 8, it says that Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshipper of God. Titus Justus, as the name implies, is definitely not Jew. He was a worshipper of God. He, was a con- he, may have, he wasn't converted to be a Jew, but he believed in the same God. But notice that his house was right next door to the synagogue. But then, it says in verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. So even as the people in the synagogue abused Paul, the leader of the synagogue himself became a Christian, became a believer, and believed God. But here we see a mix, a rather rich, probably a rich Roman, Titius Justus, who had a house that was big enough to accommodate many listeners. He became a believer. But the Jewish, very um, religious Jewish leader, um, Crispus, also became a believer. Here we see multiculturalism, a Jew and a Greek. And it says then that many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. The Corinthians then would not even be believers or worshippers of God. They would be Gentiles, pagans from a totally different background. And they too believed in God. It was also a thriving church, as we see here in verse 10, where, Paul, where God says to Paul, don't be afraid. No one's going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. This was a vision to Paul, a prophecy. At that time, probably Paul had just started preaching. He wouldn't know what would happen. But in that vision, God said, you, I have many people. That means I've prepared many people for this church. And so the church in Corinth thrived. They had a mix of Jews, of Gentiles, of God worshippers, mix of rich and poor. Almost an ideal church. But then we looked at how the church operated because what was fortunate for us is that Paul wrote two very long letters to the Corinthians, more than any of his other letters. And in these two letters, he expresses, it indicates the issues that were the church was facing. And the church was far from ideal. It was indeed a messed up church. First, there were factions. First, there were factions in this church. There were divisions over leadership. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he says, one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, another says, I follow Cephas or Peter, still another, I follow Christ. There were different various leaders in this church, and, the, and people took sides. The people, one group said, I want Apollos, the other said, I want Paul. And I, I think, we don't know why they wanted that, but I have a feeling that it had to do with the, the way they preached, their preaching styles. It had to do with um, the leadership styles. Because Paul says that he did not come with eloquence and oratory. He came simple, trembling, but with power. He brought the word, but with the word came miracles and signs and wonders. Apollos, on the other hand, was a Greek. And, he, and Paul at one point says the Greeks seek wisdom. And so it seems as though Apollos was a good orator, 
very, very eloquent. He could persuade people. And so some people say, well, you like his arguments. But Paul, Paul is simple. He doesn't argue very well. We can't, aren't even convinced by his arguments. Yet others would say, but Paul is powerful. He does miracles. Apollos talks only. It could have been these differences. But each of these differences appealed to different people in the congregation. And so there was division. Some would rather do the way Paul did. Others would do the way that Peter did. And others, Apollos did. In a church, often, there are different emphasis also. And I hear it all the time in various churches where one says the church doesn't pray enough. These people don't pray. They just do work. Another says this group only sits down to pray and do nothing. We are the workers. And yet both of them then say, but these people don't know the word of God. They are ignorant. And often in the church, then we hear different groups following different leaders. One who is strong in prayer and an emphasis on prayer. Another who is strong in the word and emphasis on the word. Yet another who is strong in outreach and goes out. And that's a wonderful thing for the church. The only problem is when there is comparison. When one compares one leader with the other, and then they say, our leader is far better. There were factions. There were also division between uh, spiritual experiences and intellect. Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Here in a mixed multicultural church, the Greeks would be philosophy first. They would want wisdom. They would want good arguments. The Jews, on the other hand, wanted spiritual experiences to see the work of God. And once again, we see a difference in expectation of members and the way God gives the gifts and the abilities. For some, we often talk about a relationship, a deep, loving, exciting relationship with God. Yet others, we even have miracles, we pray and things happen. And yet for some, we, we wonder, they, they wonder, but what is this about relationship? We know about forgiveness, we know about grace, we know about God. But we don't feel God very much. Are all expected to have the same emotions? Are all expected to have the same experiences? It looks like not. I remember uh, there was a guy who who was an engineer, and engineers, well, they are different kind of people. We talked about deep relationships with God, and he was scratching his head and said, I can reason out God logically, intelligently. What's this about feeling? Well, his wife says he's the same with Mila. He doesn't, he's not even sure what he's feeling. Well, we are different. Sometimes we can change a little bit, but we are wired differently. And so in the church in Corinth, there, was, there were factions. There were also fascination with oratory and eloquence, where Paul said, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. And then there was arrogance. The people thought, this must be, have been the very rich ones. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul was talking about the people who said, we are better than Paul. We have more gifts. We are more able than Paul. These were probably the very rich ones who then looked down on Paul, who had Little eloquence, little wealth, little of most things. And they felt then that they were superior to Paul. But these were the problems, one of the problems with the church. But there were many more.
from, oops. Second, there was abuse of grace. You know, one of the biggest problems that a Christian faces is the understanding of grace. Grace is liberating. It sets us free because we, it says that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to the law. But the problem is then, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean then that you're no longer bound by the law? What does it mean that you're no longer slaves to the law? You see, for the Jews, it was very easy. You just follow the commandments. You just follow everything that God says and if the, if, the Old Test, if the scriptures say this is right, you do this. If the scripture says that is wrong, you don't do that. Simple enough. But when Paul, when Jesus came and brought grace and Paul came preaching about grace that no longer are we bound by the law, there's a problem. Because then what is, how do we regulate our lives? What is moral? What's immoral? What is lawful? What is unlawful? And in a church then, there will arise many, many of such differences. For those of us who have been brought up strictly um, from young on the commandments, on following God, that would be easy. Never mind about whether God forgives me, but at least I have a framework. I have the Ten Commandments to work with. But for one who comes from the outside and he hears, you are forgiven, everything is free for you, God loves you, whatever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you will do, God embraces you and God loves you, then there would be a huge problem with moral behavior. And so what happened in that church was blatant immorality within the church. It's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. So from this, it hints also that from Paul that pagans have a very different uh, standard of morality. And this is what Paul then says, you say I have a right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. So Paul acknowledges that because of grace, we do have a right to do everything. But just because we have a right to do everything doesn't make everything good for us. Paul was figuring out, working with them on a new paradigm, no longer follow A, follow B, policy A, policy B, but rather reasoning with them what was good and what was not good. It makes the church a lot more difficult to run. It's so much easier to say, these are the things you're allowed to do, these are the things you're not allowed to do. But then to train the church members who were of very diverse understanding of what was good, what was bad, helping them to understand and to think critically what is beneficial and what is not beneficial. But here was another problem that the church faced. Yet another one. Um, can you help me? I'll just pretend to wave this and then you change it. <laughs> Clash of cultures. Lawsuits. In the church, there were many lawsuits. Again, this had to do with a clash of cultures. Because within the Roman, I mean, within the Jewish culture, if you had a disagreement, you, you figure it out within the community. But when the new community formed, where Gentiles came and the Gentiles were very used to a different system, where they turned to the law, the courts, 
there was yet another problem. You know, in our day two, when we talk about reaching out to the community, it sounds a very good idea. Let's just reach out to them. What we forget is that things may not be as simple as we had thought they would be. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but at least we should be prepared. Because each group brings in their own paradigms, their own systems that they're used to. Within the church in Corinth then, among the Jews, they would expect that things be settled inside among the elders. Among the pagans, courts were the normal way. And they would bring everything to the courts. And so when they came into the church, there would be different ways of doing things. And that brought about lawsuits. And then there were many of the issues that were of uncharted waters. They were neither good, right, or wrong. They were neither moral nor immoral, and yet they were different. For example, piousness and celibacy. Paul wrote, now for the matters which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In many cultures, a pious man would not have sex with a woman, whether it is in Christianity or many other religions, as you can see, that in fact, in many religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, the very holy people do not get married. They remain celibate. It's one of the signs of, one of the necessities of piety. The Jews, however, the teachers, the rabbis, the most recognized teachers were all married. They had to be married to be a rabbi. And so you have a clash. The most holy people are married in the Jewish tradition. The most holy people in the other religions were not married. And these were issues that they had to settle, the church there had to settle. Different understanding because of a different background. And then there was the issue of the unbelieving spouse. A Christian then would say, what if my wife is, refuses to be a Christian? I'm a Christian now, but she doesn't want to be a Christian. She doesn't recognize the things that I'm doing. She doesn't appreciate the things that I'm doing. What do I do with her? Do I divorce her? And so Paul had to deal with that. And then there were the issues of food offered to idols. It was a new thing because in the past, no Jew would go near any idol, so there was no issue at all. But one of the biggest problems about this one is that there's lots of unwritten things. There was no manual to, to refer to. Paul couldn't say, well, in the Old Testament, these are the laws, and so let's check them out. This one is written here, that one is referred to here, there. But in each of these issues, nothing was mentioned in the scriptures. And the church then had to figure it out from first principles, figure things out as they went along. Very difficult task. But you know that lots of things in today's society to norms, actions, decisions, are not specifically, explicitly written in the Bible. Sometimes we say whatever we face, we, we, we face, we just refer to the Bible, and then you flip the Bible, it doesn't say a thing. But it does, the Bible does give us first principles, important principles to work from. And this church at Corinth, in a, facing a new paradigm in a secular world with secular people walking in, had to figure things out one at a time. When we do outreach, when we bring people in then, 
we will face new controversies, new challenges, new differences that you've never seen before and that we are not familiar with. Each time that happens, the church has to come together to talk about things, to work through first principles. And then, of course, there were differences in spiritual gifts. First, Paul mentioned gift of tongues and the chaos at worship, where some people spoke in tongues and others did not understand and people were confused. But it wasn't just the gift of tongues. There were also the various gifts. The funny thing is that God gives fairly. God does not give equally. The difference is this, that God gives to us gifts that allow us to flourish in our ministry. Whichever ministry that God gives to you, you will flourish when you turn to Him. But God is not equal in His gifts. A person who is gifted to prophesy may not have wisdom. He speaks only. But a person who has a gift of healing may not be able to prophesy. Each person has a different gift and it's not equal at all. The problem with that kind of distribution then is that we often look over our shoulders and see how come he got this and I only have this. And then what's worse is how I got this and he's only got that little bit. And so there became an issue of hierarchy of who is stronger, who is better, who is superior to the other. And that's messy in the church as well. Because those who seem to have greater gifts will then look down on those with lesser gifts, which was why Paul said, but those with seemingly hidden gifts actually have more important gifts and you should treasure them. But that created a big problem in the church as well. As God gave his gifts liberally to each one, they began to look at each other's gifts and say, I'd rather have that one. This one, not good enough. And so, the conclusion is this. The authentic church is messy. Let's not idolize it. I think one of the biggest problems we face often in church, in the various churches I've been to, is that we get disillusioned when there are problems, when there's conflict in church, when there are issues where there are no answers, or worse, when the leaders are fighting each other over supremacy, where members fight each other over gifts. And we get, get easily offended and disillusioned. But the reality is that the church is a messy place. And so some members leave to another church only to go to discover that the outside veneer looks good. The moment we get into leadership is even worse. Let me give you a little short story. I used to be very, very disillusioned with the Methodist church politics here, politics there, everyone fighting here, fighting there. And so I was overjoyed when I was posted to a prison fellowship. And I thought, this is the best place I'm out of the Methodist church. And we dealt with like 150 churches. And the politics over there. And people often ask me, well, it must be very hard to work with prisoners. I say, no, man, prisoners are the angels. The churches are what caused my headache and my frustration and my breakdown. And after working with the churches for six years, I said, God, thank you that I'm in the Methodist church. Politics and all, we are, I'm happy there. But the reality is 
that every church is a messed up church because we are churches that are trying to figure out what life really is as we follow Christ. And so we should never idolize a church, but rather we accept the mess there is and then we soldier on. The gifts of the Spirit will not solve our problems. They may create more problems, but let's, not, let's keep receiving and using them. Sometimes we say, well, if all of us had gifts of the Spirit, things would be so good. Equating gifts of the Spirit with being filled with the Spirit. Receiving gifts of the Holy Spirit is not the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we get that wrong, we think then that if everyone had these special, powerful gifts of the Spirit, the church would be good. Church in Corinth proved otherwise. That when each of them had great gifts, they started fighting each other. Do we then give up, church? Do we then give up working towards a heterogeneous church, a church where there will be rich and poor, educated and non-educated, people of different cultures? How then shall we live? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, then where Paul was still talking about the comparison between Apollos and himself and Peter, and he says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And that's a philosophy that we carry, whether in church or at work or in a family. And it's a very difficult, it's an easy concept to think about. It's a very difficult thing to practice. Basically, it's this, keep thinking of God. Think, keep thinking of the goodness of God. And that's the one antidote to politics in the office, to conflict at home, to politics in church. And it's hard because what do we think about often in our minds? We think of how well I've done. We think of how appreciated I am. The whole world is, demands that. What are the reviews of our work? What are the reviews of my preaching? What are the reviews of our church? What are the reviews of our performance? These are things that go on and on because everyone looks to these things. But if we were slowly to turn our minds as John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease, which means that we condition our minds slowly one day at a time to think, how good has God been today to me? Can I think of the goodness of God? Can I start looking at how God is good even in the troubles that I have? Can I turn to God? Can I rest in God? Can I look less at my own performance Yes, doing well is important, but I do well for God. I do not do well that I, might be, that I might be praised again and again. And it's just, it's just difficult, but it is necessary to begin to switch our minds, to think less and less of ourselves. Where we then slowly think less about how people think of us, what people's reaction to us is, how we are affirmed or how great we are, and spend more and more time thinking has God been good? How has God been good to me? He must increase in the number of times I think of God, and I must decrease in the number of times I think of myself. It is a very conscious effort to change that part of us. But as Paul also writes in Colossians chapter 3, set your minds on things above and not things below. Stop, or less and less think of myself, more and more think about God. It's extremely difficult, I know, 
Because whenever I think of things, I think about, well, the, the victories that I've had, the hardships that I've suffered, the martyrdom that I have, the bravery that I have, the courage that I have, it's all about me. But what if we slowly, step by step, thought about how God delivered us, delivered me from my problems? How God solved this issue, how God blessed me with that. And begin to turn our minds to think about the goodness of God. It is the only way for us to continue as a church, to continue as people, to keep our minds sane when we think more of God and less of ourselves. Let our boasting be of God. Let anyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then the second principle doesn't solve the problems immediately, but it's the most important one, that, that, that is to love one another. Seems it's often underrated. Sometimes I've even heard in the name of love you do anything, but you know that's pretty true, that in the name of love we need to think more about love, about loving each other, about the good of each other. You see, the earlier conflicts that the people had, Paul continually said, but if you considered the other person, what would you do? If you considered the spouse who wants to, doesn't want to leave you, unbelieving spouse doesn't want to leave you, what do you do? You keep her, you love her. If you consider the people who do not understand what you say in tongues, what do you do? You keep quiet or you find interpretation, you think of them and you see how to bless them and how to make their lives better. If you consider the person who stumbled when you exercise your freedom to eat food offered to idols, what do you do? You stop eating altogether because that person is precious to you. See, love was Paul's key to a church that would ultimately work, a very, very messy church that would ultimately work. Think of the other person. Think for the other person. Whatever you do in all your differences, especially with the people you don't like, think for that person. One of the things that I've discovered too is that thinking for the other person does change our attitudes a lot. When I was still practicing in law, I had a colleague whom really couldn't stand. I mean, she was a rival of all rivals. She would try to undercut everything that I, I did. And then the Holy Spirit convicted me to pray for her and to learn to love her and to think for her. As I did so, circumstances began to change. But I no longer saw her as trying to undermine my work. But I saw myself as trying to understand what she was going through insecurities that she was facing, the need to be promoted, the need to compete. But as I saw her differently, it changed the way I, I responded, I reacted to her. I saw her as a person who needed to be loved, needed security, needed God. And so I started helping her. And in the end, we became allies. But we need to think for the boss who's awful to you, to think for him and to ask God, show me what it's like. To think of a spouse whom we are fighting hard with, uh, fighting hard against. What is in the heart and what are the fears? What are the needs? And if we were to allow the Holy Spirit then to teach us, 
these things day by day, impossible tasks on our own, but possible by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we will indeed flourish. The church in Corinth was an impossible church to begin with. It was bound for failure because it was cross-cultural, it was multicultural, it was a messed up church. But it was an experiment that would work because Paul, in that case, taught them the two principles, think of God and think of each other. Let us pray. Father, you want to create a community that is not just big and prosperous and flourishing with lots and lots of people, but you create a community where each of us is taught moment by moment to think of you and to think of your goodness and to then turn our minds and our hearts towards you more and more of you less and less of ourselves that our successes do matter far less than your successes and your goodness that insults to us matter far less than people realizing how good you are. That we be jealous not for, for ourselves, but jealous for you, that people will know you and, and be amazed by you and be ministered to by you. And that day by day we diminish in that picture. That's the kind of Christians, that's the kind of church that you are building, Lord, and we ask that each of us may be a part of that, that it will be less of us and more of you that in our daily thoughts, you will teach us how to control and to stop the thoughts that elevate ourselves, that takes offense easily because we are offended. But to think then of your goodness, of your mercy, and of how people would be blessed if they knew the same. Father, we ask that you occupy our minds more and more with this. And Lord, then you teach us to love. Teach us to love the other. That our attention may be less on ourselves, but more on the other. The person who is opposing us, the person who is next to us, the person who works alongside us. Teach us, Lord, to think for them and of them. Because, Lord, as you teach us these lessons, indeed, Lord, we will grow into your image. And then, Lord, we will be an example of you being in our midst. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.